Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Section 9 of David Hume's Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding is titled Of the Reason of Animals. And before launching into the various points that are made there, we should observe something, which is that this term reason or reasoning is used in kind of a double sense in this section. Hume wants to say that there's, you know, reasoning or argumentation that is something explicit, that we human beings do at least some of the time when it comes to like making decisions or carrying out geometric proofs or perhaps doing philosophy or engaging in the other disciplines. You know, the sort of things that a writer him or herself is doing in writing their book about, say, the human understanding. There's also what he's going to call experimental reasoning, which he says that we human beings share in common with the beasts, that is, with non-human animals. So animals do reason in one sense, although they don't reason in another sense of the term. And this is going to bring us to an interesting question, which requires a little bit of setup. So he tells us at the very beginning, all of our reasonings concerning matter of fact are founded on a species of analogy, right? So we're constantly relying upon analogizing or analogy in order for us to understand our very experience and, and manage uh, anything in the world, what does this do? This species of analogy leads us to expect from any cause the same effects which we've observed to result from similar causes. And he says, well, you know, we have perfect and imperfect cases. So, you know, where the resemblance is very, very close, perhaps so close that we can't see any real difference. For example, pieces of chalk. If you know one piece of chalk, you probably know what's going on with the other chalk. We should expect it to write on the board in the same way, to have the same properties. Now, if we move to things that are not quite so similar, then we have imperfect analogies. And this doesn't mean that we don't buy into them, but we don't have the same degree of certainty or the same, you could say, intensity of belief. And so he says that there's a proportion to the degree of similarity and resemblance, at least as far as we understand it, right? We could be mistaken about this. Then he goes on and he says that, you know, let's use animals as an example. The anatomical observations formed on one animal are by this species of reasoning extended to all animals. And it is certain that when the circulation of the blood is clearly proven to have place in one creature like a frog or a fish, it forms a strong presumption that the same principle has place in all. And so, you know, think about like if you've ever taken a high school biology class where you had to do some dissection of worms or frogs or fetal pigs or other animals, you know, you don't go around and like dissect every single animal to be sure that there's a circulatory system. It's enough to dissect one and to rely 
on the testimony given by our textbooks and our teachers that what goes for this goes for others. But even if we didn't have them saying that, we would say, yeah, I, I think that these are pretty similar. So if I cut open this frog and find a heart and, you know, veins and, all, you know, they're going into all these things, it's probably the same in, in that frog over there. So we rely on this quite a bit for understanding animals. And then he says, well, these analogical observations may be carried further, even to this science of which we're now treating. That is the topics of the inquiry concerning the human understanding. And he says, any theory by which we explain the operations of the understanding or the origin and connection of the passions in human beings, which is, you know, what a lot of this is about. Passions get treated a little bit more in the other inquiry, but if we can find something similar going on, not just in all human beings, but in our other animals, because we're animals, right? Then this will, as he says, acquire additional authority if we find the same theory as requisite to explain the same phenomena in all other animals. So this is actually worth pausing on for a moment. We're going to strengthen our human theory about the understanding and the passions of humans by looking at animals. All animals? I don't know, maybe not a mosquito. <laughs> you know, Maybe we want to look at otters and bears or horses and, and dogs as he prefers to do. Instead, maybe there's vital differences between certain types of animals. But if we stick to the ones that are closer to us, I think Hume's argument becomes much more plausible. And he provides us with a couple reasons for thinking that this is the case. The first one is quite interesting and I think kind of commonsensical. He says, it seems evident animals as well as human beings learn many things from from experience and infer that the same events will always follow from the same causes. Now, again, Hume is being a little bit general with this. Uh, it should be that animals don't always, you know, learn that the same events will always follow from the same causes. There should be a degree of probability there, right? But he says by this principle, they become acquainted with the more obvious properties of external objects and gradually from their birth, acquire a knowledge of the nature of notice the examples he's going to give fire, water, earth, stones, heights, depths, etc., and of the effects that follow from their operation. So you, you know, stick your little paw in the fire and it gets burned and you're like, oh, I don't like that, right? You learn, don't touch the fire, right? You drink the water and the water tastes good and it, you know, quenches your thirst. Now you know that. Don't fall in the water and go underneath because you might drown. Unless, of course, you're the kind of animal that swims around in water, right? And how can we tell that learning is taking place? Well, the differences between young and old animals. And he gives some examples of horses and greyhounds that we don't need to necessarily go through. And then he talks about how we human beings can also help to educate or discipline this process within animals. You know, think about the thing with throwing the ball and the dog goes running, even though the ball is in your hand. You do that a few times and then a dog comes back and is ticked off with you because it realizes you've been tricking it. It ran in the first place because of the many times that you would actually throw the ball and it observed you doing this motion and the ball being downfield. And then it can go and get its, its ball and, you know, bring it back to you or do whatever else it's going to do. Chew on it, you know, keep it away from other dogs. That is a process of discipline or education. 
right? All sorts of other things. I mean, he's got examples of like showing the dog the stick that you used to beat it with. Hopefully you're not beating your pets, but in Hume's time, this is very common. And the dog, you know, actually he talks about not just a stick, but a whip, right? But you know, these, these are all examples of discipline and education. You can think about the effect of feeding a pet, right? When that pet hears the kibble bag rustling or the can opener opening and the sound of things being put into its bowl, it's like, ooh, it's time to eat. How does it know? Because there's no like natural connection between those. Well, education of sorts, right? So this is uh, quite clear. And he says that in all of these cases, we may observe the animal infers some fact beyond what immediately strikes his senses. And that this inference is founded on past experience, just like with us, right? So there's a strong analogy there between us and other animals. What about the inferences that animals are drawing? So here we get to the second argument that he's making. This is a very interesting one with some pretty important implications. He says, it's impossible the inference of the animal can be founded on any process of argument or reasoning by which he concludes like events must follow like objects and that the course of nature will always be regular in its operations. Why? Hume says, if there be in reality any arguments of this nature, they surely lie too abstruse for the observation of such imperfect understandings, the understanding that an animal has, since it may well employ the utmost care and attention of a philosophic genius to discover and observe them, right? So, Here's where we get to the very interesting matter that comes to light. Hume says, you know, not only do animals not engage in any sort of explicit process of argumentation or reasoning, neither do most humans. Children don't do that. I mean, we could say, well, wait a second. I've encountered kids who can, you know, like spell out why they want to do something. Okay, put that aside for the moment. For the most part, kids aren't doing that, right? And they don't do it as much as adults do, certainly. And even most adults aren't doing this most of the time. He says the generality of mankind and their ordinary actions and conclusions aren't doing this. And even the philosophers philosophers in their books, in their classes are doing this, but that's kind of fake. That's not what they're doing most of the time. He says, in all the active parts of life, philosophers are in the main the same with the vulgar and are governed by the same maxims. So how does this actually happen for animals and for us? Uh, custom, which Hume has talked about quite a lot in the previous sections of the work. He says it's custom alone, which engages animals from every object that strikes their senses to infer its usual attendant and carries their imagination from the appearance of the one to conceive the other in that particular manner, which we denominate belief. He says no other explication can be given of this. Now notice something very important here. By contrast to many other philosophers of his time who treat animals as if they're essentially just machines made of meat, have no real consciousness. Hume says that they have an understanding, they have passions, they have imagination. They even have this thing that we denominate or call belief. Animals, at least some of them, are much, much closer to human beings for Hume than many other people make them out to be. A third thing that he talks about is the role of instincts, and he's going to bring something very interesting to light. Now, how do animals carry out a lot of their sort of inferences? Some of it is on the basis of experience. A lot of it is on the basis of instinct, something that's born into them. We might call it their genetic programming or something like that. 
that. And he tells us that, you know, although animals learn many parts of their knowledge from observation, there's many parts they derive from the original hand of nature, right? And he says that they don't need to learn this. As a matter of fact, it doesn't do them any good to like practice their instincts. These we denominate instincts and we're in admiration of them. Holy crap, look at how this animal can figure this thing out, even though it never got taught that. Like, you know, think about birds flying, right? A lot of that is instinctual. You know, if they had to like stop and think about what they're doing, it would probably be like those cartoons where we see the animal go off the cliff and like look down, think about what's happening, and then they fall directly down, right? But we also have instincts. And, you know, I'm not just talking about things like our startle instinct or infant suckling at the breast. Hume tells us that this entire functioning of custom is itself instinctual. He tells us that we should consider the experimental reasoning itself. Okay, so now that's another thing I wanted to call your attention to. Here is where Hume is saying that this custom is experimental reasoning. That's clearly reasoning in a different sense than explicit reasoning because he tells us we possess this experimental reasoning in common with beasts and on which the whole conduct of life depends is nothing, he tells us, but a species of instinct or mechanical power, and it acts in us, he says, unknown to ourselves. In its chief operations, it's not directed by any relations or comparison of ideas, as are the proper objects of our intellectual faculties. Much of the time, you could say we're working on autopilot, right? Or following programming that we have. And that is experimental reasoning for both ourselves and for beasts or other animals. There is one last thing that we ought to discuss. In some of the versions of the text, we have a long footnote in which Hume is saying that it might be asked how it happens that human beings so much surpass animals in reasoning and one human being so much surpasses another. Doesn't custom work the same way on all of them? And here's where Hume says, no, there's important differences between human beings. And he gives a whole list of nine different factors. And then he says, there's many other circumstances that make a difference. I'm not going to go into them. So the first one, he says, when we've lived any time and been accustomed to the uniformity of nature, we acquire a general habit by which we transfer the known to the unknown and conceive the latter to resemble the former. And so, you know, this is quite important. And so, you know, how do you do this? By observing the consequences of things. And so, because some people surpass others in attention, memory, paying observation to things, this is going to make a difference. You know, you could say some people take in more data than other people do. He also says where there's a complication of causes to produce any effect, one mind might be larger, more able to take in different things and better able to comprehend the whole system of objects and to infer justly their consequences. Third, he says one person is able to carry on a chain of consequences to a greater length than another. Fourth, he says few people can think long without running into a confusion of ideas. Some people are better than this than others. Fifth, the circumstance on which the effect depends is frequently involved in other circumstances which are foreign and extrinsic. Being able to, to separate these out requires great attention, accuracy, and subtlety. People are different in those respects. Six, forming general maxims from particular observations. A very, as he says, nice operation, meaning we have to pay close attention to what we're doing. And nothing is more usual from a haste or narrowness of mind than to commit mistakes. Seven, when we reason from analogies, the person who has the greater experience 
or the greater promptitude in suggesting analogies is going to be the better reasoner. Eight, biases from prejudice, education, passion, party affect some people more than others. And then finally, nine, after we have acquired a confidence in human testimony, books and conversation enlarge much more the sphere of one person's experience and thought than another. So there's these nine different factors that make some people better at analogizing, other people not quite so good at it. And so that produces a difference in the way custom works. And we could probably say that some of these would apply to animals as well. You know, maybe some animals are just better at drawing analogies. Some are smarter. Some are a little bit freer of their instincts. And we could go on and on and on as well. But we see that for David Hume in this chapter, there's a lot of similarity between how the human mind works and how animal minds work. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.